Hi, this is Joel Knox from the Vineyard Church in Brenham, Texas. I'm so glad that you're interested in our podcasts. Our media is available to you free of charge, and it always will be. But if you'd like to help us out, you can go to our website, vineyardbrenham.org, and make a donation there. We'd appreciate it very much. Anyway, thanks again for stopping by, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I am, I've already said that I'm excited. I am super pumped about this morning. When, when I came up with the title of this, of this message, I, I, I was just, I, I, was, I was telling everybody about it. And I told the group that meets at our house on, on Wednesdays, we, we meet together and we plan the services and stuff. And I told them, I, I've got this great title for, for the, the uh, what is today? Palm Sunday. Um, for the Palm Sunday service. And, and this, is, this is going to be kind of out of order, but th- that's okay, because I, I want to tell you the title first, and then the title slide comes later. But there's always some dude on a horse, some guy on a horse. Okay, and I'll, I'll explain that. But this is the day that we celebrate whenever Jesus came into Jerusalem. And he was celebrated as a king. And, and this morning we tried to depict that with the kids waving branches and waving banners. And, you know, and uh, I was kind of wanting, if there was a way that I could have dropped the guitar and kept singing and, and kind of started up with everybody, you know, I, I was, I, I, and, and this wasn't really from coffee. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just really excited. But, um, in just three days from this Sunday, if, if you, you've read the, the Bible story, Jesus comes in on Sunday and is received as king. And there, this wild party is going on as he's coming through the streets of Jerusalem. Three days later, he's on trial, his life is on the line, and he is condemned and executed by the Roman authorities. In just three days' time. That, that, that's what we commemorate during Holy Week. So if you can imagine the swing of emotion that goes from Sunday to Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Now, I particularly like to look at Holy Week through the eyes of, the, of, of Mark, the Gospel writer Mark. Because if you read in Mark, Mark breaks down the week by days. Now, he doesn't say it was Monday, it was Tuesday, but he says the next day, and then the next day, and then in the morning, and things like that. So if you'd like to read this week, and this is just a little bit of homework if you'd like to, like to take it, it's optional, but if you'd like for some, some devotional reading this week, read in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 11. And that's where we're going to be this morning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. And that's kind of a scary thing. I don't know if you're a horse person. A colt that's never been ridden? Man, what what are you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, take it riding. Yeah, you'll have a good time. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and I will send it back there shortly. And they went and found a colt outside 
in the street, tied in the doorway, just as Jesus said. As they untied it, someone standing there asked, What are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? And they answered, just as Jesus told them, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and He sat on it. And many people spread out their cloaks on the road, while others spread out branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts and He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, history is something that I'm really, really passionate about. I I love history. If the Lord hadn't called me to preach when I was 16, I wanted to be a football coach and a history teacher. That's what I wanted to do. And I don't know if you saw the video this week of the guy that does the baptisms, you know, the really... That that would have been me. And and oh, by the way, if if anybody wants to be baptized, I've got some inspiration for next time. So, but... I, I digress. That, that'll be fun. We'll just have to clean it. That, maybe that'll be a reason. Well, no, never mind. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, brain, the, my brain's on, on overload this morning, so you have to excuse me. But I, I love history because you can go back and you can see the decisions that people made and how those decisions impacted the future. I mean, if you look back just at the 20th century and what took place with World War I, what happened in the aftermath of World War I, which led to World War II, and then what took place after World War II. You can see all of these decisions that were made which result in the world we live in today. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. And the truth is, is that we don't really learn the lessons that history has to teach us. We say that a lot. But it's true. We don't learn from history. It just kind of repeats itself. Now, one of the most significant parts of our human history involves the wars that have been fought down through the centuries. I want to read an excerpt from an article that was written by Chris Hedges that appeared in the New York Times in 2003. War is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. Has the world ever been at peace? Of the past 3,400 years, 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 years. Think about that for a second. It's not even 10% of the time that we've, that we've experienced on this earth. Or just 8% of recorded history. How many people have died in war? At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th 20th century. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. War has several other effects on population, including decreasing the birth rate by taking men away from their wives. The reduced birth rate during World War II is estimated to have caused a population deficit of more than 20 million people. Just imagine. 
How many people around the world serve in the military? The combined armed forces in the world have 21.3 million people. China has the world's largest with 2.4 million. America is second with 1.4 million. India has 1.3 million. Korea has a million. And Russia has 900,000. Of the world's 20 largest militaries, 14 are in developing countries. How many wars are taking place right now? This is in 2003. There were 30 wars going on around the world. These included conflicts in Afghanistan, Algeria, Burundi, China, Colombia, the Congo, India, Indonesia, Israel, Iraq, Liberia, Nigeria, Pakistan, Peru, the Philippines, Russia, Somalia, Sudan, and Uganda. Why are civilians so attracted to war? War is often regarded by observers as, an, as honorable and noble. It can be viewed as a contest between nations, a chance to compete and to be declared victor. Now, everybody loves a winner. I mean, we want to be on the winning side. Nobody likes to lose, especially in America. We like to win. And to the winner go the spoils of war. The heroes of military history have often been commemorated in statues of bronze. And with that in mind, that's why I have the, side, the, the title of my sermon. There's always some guy on a horse. Across the world, one of the great traditions is to depict national heroes on a horseback in recognition of their importance in history. And, I, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. The first one is, is Genghis Khan. This is the largest known equestrian statue in the world. And if you look down here on the steps, there's this, this guy on a horse. You know, these, these are, are riders. That's a little boy just down on the right-hand side. That's how large. I mean, th this, is, this is as big as a building commemorating Genghis Khan and his, his reign over Asia. And there's also Peter the Great, the hero of Russia. The city of St. Petersburg is named after him. And then there's Marcus Aurelius. Those of you who like the movie Gladiator, he was actually a real person. And he's also commemorated on a horse in Rome. And then there's King George. I was looking for King George I, and actually this is King George IV. It doesn't really matter. They're, they're, they're all guys on a horse. But in England, they don't discriminate. They actually have women heroes on horses. There's Queen Victoria. It's a, it's a nice one. It's an old one, by the way. It's, you know, the, the, the copper has has turned green, or maybe that's bronze. I, I don't know which, but anyway, you know, it does what it does whenever it's exposed to the elements. And then there's Queen Elizabeth II in England, which is also quite nice. And, and I, you can't really tell in this picture, but she is not riding side saddle. That was one of the things she was known for, by the way. So, um, But continuing on, in the U.S., we also have our own heroes. 
There's George Washington and Ulysses S. Grant, who was also a general but went on to be president of the United States. And I was already down to 14 slides, and so it's like, I, you know, I probably need to maybe not show as many more pictures. But just think about the ones that you can think of. General Lee, Sam Houston, down in Herman Park. I mean, they're all over the place. Some guy on a horse. And if you're, if you're in another country and you just see it, it's like, oh, that's some guy on the horse. But here in the United States, well, that's our guy on the horse. You know? That's, a, that's our hero, Sam Houston, right? You know, Viva Texas. Well, possibly no other guy on a horse was more famous in history than Alexander III from Macedon. We know him as Alexander the Great. Alexander spent most of his ruling years on an unprecedented military campaign through Asia and Northeast Africa, and he created one of the largest empires in the ancient world by the age of 30. Man, I, I, I don't know what I've been doing in my life. <laughs> by 30, this guy had conquered most of the known world. His empire stretched from Greece to northwestern India. He was undefeated in battle and is widely considered one of the world's most successful military commanders before his death at the ripe old age of 32. And some historians believe he was, he was poisoned in his, in his residence. And, you know, it's, it was thousands of years ago, so, you know, it, it's a mystery. His horse... Bucephalus, I thought this was fascinating, which means bullface, was also quite famous. Once considered an unbreakable stallion, Alexander added to his legend by breaking Bucephalus and making his war, him his war horse and his most trusted steed. Bucephalus died at the, the ripe old age of 29. In horse years, that's, that's pretty old. He was also undefeated in battle. And he is said to be buried in a, a city called Thalia, a town in Pakistan which was named after him. You know you've arrived when your horse gets towns named after it. <laughs> now, about the time that Alexander and Bucephalus were conquering the world in the 4th century B.C., there was a Hebrew poet, prophet, by the name of Zechariah, and he proclaimed that there would be a different kind of king that would come. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, and he's riding on a donkey. On a donkey? Riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. And your king will bring peace to the nations and his realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. The true king of Israel wasn't going to be like Alexander the Great. 
He wouldn't be like any other king who came to conquest. The true king would be gentle and humble and would bring peace to the nations. Now fast forward four centuries later to the time of the text that I read just a few minutes ago. Jesus entered Jerusalem on this Sunday before Passover and this was the most, most important event on the Jewish calendar. Now think about this. this is, Passover was when they were in, in bondage in Egypt. You remember the story? Did you watch the Ten Commandments? The time came for them to leave. And so the Passover, that, that represented the Spirit coming in. And when they saw the blood, when the Spirit saw the blood on the doorpost, they wouldn't come in. He wouldn't come in and wouldn't kill their children. And, and at the same time in, in Egypt, the firstborn sons were, were all, all killed. The firstborn of, of livestock were all killed because they didn't have the covering of blood over them. And then after Passover, Pharaoh was so upset, he just told the Israelites to leave. Go! Get out of here! You've, you've spoiled our country! Leave! And that represented their freedom. That represented the fact that they were free. They were no longer slaves. And of course, we know the story. They, they followed later and, and the Lord delivered them. But that, that entire story, that encapsulation of the story is what they celebrate at Passover. Now, if you can imagine, here in the United States, we're Americans. We celebrate July the 4th. What would it be like to, to celebrate July 4th and have somebody else's armies parading down our street? We wouldn't be happy about that, would we? Say it was the, the government of Mexico and they're, they're, they've got tanks and they've got guys on horseback and they've got soldiers with guns and they're walking down Main Street. Don't you celebrate July the 4th? You're under occupation. And that's what it was like in Jerusalem. And during the time of Passover, Jerusalem was a town of about 30,000. So, I don't know, we could compare that to a town around here. Britain's about 15,000, so, so we could, that, that might be close enough. People come from, from miles around to, to celebrate in Jerusalem the Passover. Because that's what they did. It was a ceremonial time of celebration. Well, in the past, in years past, in the intertestamental period, we hear about, we can read about the, the, the riots that took place, the uprisings that took place, because when all those people got together, you know, there's always somebody in the crowds like, we don't have to put up with this. We're free people. We can control our own fate. And so with all these people around, you know, the next thing you know, you've got, got a group of people that's ready to overthrow the Roman government. That's how those things work. Well, you don't really find this in Scripture. But just imagine for a moment. Passover's coming. Rome knows that Passover is a big deal with the, Jew, with the Jewish people. 
What do they have to do to maintain control so that these crazy Jewish people don't get out of line? They sent Pilate to Jerusalem. Now, any time that the Roman army moved into a place, any time that a prefect or a governor that was, that was in charge of, of controlling a region came into, in, into that place, it was the custom that he would come riding in on a horse, on a war horse, and he would be flanked by his armies. And so as, as Passover arrived, and we don't know when this happened, but I'm sure it, it happened sometime before Palm Sunday, and all of these troops descended upon Jerusalem. So, coming down from the east, or the west, I, I, I get my directions mixed up. But the palace for, for Pilate was in, in Caesarea, which is to the, the northwest of Jerusalem. So when he came into Jerusalem, he was coming in from the west, and he would have come through the western gate. And I, I, I was looking for Mel. Uh, well, there you are, Mel. You guys, you're in Jerusalem. You probably saw the western gate and the eastern gate, and they have all these different gates. And so Pilate comes in from the west, and he comes riding into Jerusalem on this war horse with the armies flanked around him. And they made their parade down the city street and that they were saying to the Jewish people, don't even think about doing something here this week. Don't even think about it. Armed to the teeth, swords, shields, men on horses, heavy armor. It was the very picture that we've been looking at this morning of, of the, the conquering king coming in to exert His authority. And then, just a few days later, there was another parade. It's a parade that we talked about here this morning. And as Jesus was coming in, He had a, he had a, a throng of people that were, they, they were following Him. They followed Him from Galilee. These were the people that had been seeing the, the, the wonders that He did, the healings and, and all the the miracles that were, were done by His hand. And so they're following along. And Jesus and His disciples are kind of walking along. And so they come up from Jericho and they get to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus stops. Because at this point, everybody's really excited. They know what's going on. Jesus is going into Jerusalem and He's going, he's going to, to tell everybody that He's the King. And he's entering in through the western gate. But before he goes inside the city of Jerusalem, he stops on the Mount of Olives and he tells his disciples to go get a donkey. And so, as he goes in riding on this donkey, the people who were flocked around Jesus were saying things like, Hosanna! which means, save us! Blessed he is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one God has sent. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is riot language. This is revolutionary language. This is the kind of stuff people who want to overthrow governments say. 
And incidentally, I mentioned that these, these crowds came with Jesus from Galilee. These aren't the people that called for Jesus to be crucified just a few days later. If you think about it, Matthew even says that the people from Jerusalem had no idea who Jesus was. And so the idea that this, the, the crowd was fickle and on, on Sunday they were, they were testifying to who Jesus was and then, then just three days later they were saying that He needed to be crucified, that's not the case. It was the religious people who were calling out for Jesus to be crucified. But that's kind of a side story. But I want you to see this morning that there are two processions here on Palm Sunday. There's one from the east and there's one from the west. The one from the west is a military parade declaring power and declaring the the supremacy of the Roman Empire. And the one from the east is a prophetic processional declaring the true kingdom of God that has come and is coming. The parade from the west was led by some guy on a horse leading an army that used violence and military might to secure control. While the parade from the east was led by a guy on a donkey leading people armed with palm branches toward a new kingdom founded on righteousness and peace. So I've got a question this morning, and everything's been leading up to this. Which parade will you march in? Will it be a military parade? Or will it be a parade of peace? Because that's the question we have to ask on Palm Sunday. How many of you have ever read the Iliad? Did you read it in school? The Iliad is sometimes referred to as the Song of Ilion or the Song of Ilium. It's an ancient Greek epic poem traditionally attributed to Homer from the 8th century. It was the closest thing that the Greco-Roman world had to a Bible. It informed their Greco-Roman worldview. It shaped their daily life and taught them about their gods. In a play called An Iliad, an updated adaption of the poem written as a single-person play, it's an ancient story of war to a contemporary audience. And as the play goes, the poet has seen all the war in history, and wherever there is a war, he's there to sing his song. And the song goes like this. Rage. Goddess, seeing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murdered, doomed, that the cost the Achaeans counted losses, hurling down the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighter souls. And the most powerful point of that play, for me, comes whenever the poet begins to recite the history of war. It's an attempt to remember a particular event. The poet begins the long bloody list like this. It's so, if you'd seen the waste, just like, well, there was a time. uh, Yeah, it was a terrible hot day during the conquest of Sumer. Oh, 
maybe it was the conquest of Sargon. Uh, maybe the Persian War. No, the Peloponnesian War. The War of Alexander the Great. The Punic War. The Gallic War. Caesar's invasion of Britain. The Great Jewish Revolt. Yellow Turban Rebellion. The War against the Moors in North Africa. Roman Persian War. The Fall of Rome. Byzantine Arab War. Muslims Conquest of Egypt. The First Seat of Constantinople. Arab-Chinese War, the Saxon Wars, the Viking raids across Europe, the Bulgarian siege of Constantinople. And this goes on and on, page after page. And then several lines down we get to World War I. And then World War II. Then the Korean War. And then we get to Vietnam. And then we get to Bosnia and Herzegovina, Chechnya, Afghanistan, Rwanda, Darfur, Iraq, Haiti, Pakistan, Lebanon, Zimbabwe, Congo, Gaza, Somalia, Georgia, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria. If you get the picture, we're talking about thousands of years, thousands of wars, Millions upon millions of people's lives who are lost. And fortunately for us here in the United States, we've never seen this kind of warfare on our shores. Sure, there was this, the Civil War 150 years ago. What's the point I'm trying to make? The poet says, every time I sing my song, I hope it's the last time. We can't seem to learn the, the, the lessons that history is trying to teach us. This past Friday, our president signed a multi-billion dollar omnibus. I don't know what you think about that, but did you know that it was the largest appropriation ever given to the U.S. Department of Defense? In other words, weapons of warfare... Now understand here, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to disparage anybody's service. I'm not trying to say that, that if, you, if you served your country that somehow you should be ashamed of that. Absolutely not. But when will we learn that this king who came to bring us peace is not like the kings that came to bring us war? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to show us he's not like those guys. He's not like the guy on the horse. And that's our true king. There was another poet from the 8th century. The Hebrew prophet, poet Isaiah, who sang a song of peace and of a Messiah who would bring that peace to earth. And his song goes like this. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We teach the already and not yet 
of the kingdom of God. And I firmly believe that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that donkey, He was proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. It is accessible. It's here now, but it's not here in its fullness. The day of peace came, but the ultimate day of peace is still coming. But my question this morning is this. Will we receive the king of war or the king of peace? Which parade will we march in? Can we stand this morning?